Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Amy Warbell, Associate Professor of Art History at the Fashion Institute of Technology. We will discuss her recent book, Lust on Trial, Censorship and the Rise of American Obscenity in the Age of Anthony Comstock, which is published by Columbia University Press. So welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. It's a great honor. Okay, well, I, you know, I, the honor is all mine because I was so excited when I sort of tangentially learned about your book when uh, some friends of mine were talking about you presenting uh, presenting it at at a conference, and I'm so glad I was able to get you on on the podcast to talk about it because I think it's a really fascinating story about a period in American history that I think has not received as much attention as it's due. Um, so in starting, I-, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about who Anthony Comstock was, because I think Comstock is a familiar name, but maybe not necessarily a familiar person to all listeners. So, so who was Anthony Comstock and, and why was he important to the development of American obscenity law? Well, Comstock is a great place to start. My book basically tracks his life. He was born in 1844 in New Canaan, Connecticut, into a very orthodox, evangelical, congregationalist family. And these were the descendants of the original Puritans. Uh, And actually, his ancestors had left Massachusetts when they felt that it was becoming too worldly and had moved to New Canaan to live an even more pure, uh, morally upright life. And so Comstock brings that perspective into American law uh, at the federal level, really, for the first time. And that's why he's so important to the history, not only of obscenity law, but American governmental censorship efforts in general. He began his career really as a vigilante. Even in his teen years, he was confiscating liquor from saloons and uh, reporting on neighbors who were behaving badly. And he's not really getting anywhere in terms of the law because these matters in early American history mostly were handled in-house. That is to say, uh, parents disciplining children, family members disciplining other family members, and congregations, especially the Congregationalist Church, disciplining their own parishioners. So Comstock serves in the Civil War, and then uh, after that time, in about 1867, 1868, he moves to New York City. And now he has a really fertile field in which to try and, uh, you know, weed out Satan's um, acolytes because New York City at that time is filled with all forms of vice that you could possibly imagine. And he begins with a very particular focus on obscenity that is uh, advertised in the newspapers and is just appalled that the police can't shut this down. And also the things that are being ordered through the mail are not just what we would think of as pornography, sexually explicit photographs, sex toys, that sort of thing, but also birth control and abortifacients. And he links all these things together because he believes that men are uh, able to 
sin because they don't have to pay the price of their sinful actions. So to his mind, if condoms are preventing men from getting syphilis when they are uh, having sex in brothels, then that's a bad thing because they should be suffering. And then, uh, you know, everyone would learn a lesson and stop these immoral behaviors. Again, he's not getting any loving from the police until he hooks up with the uh, very wealthy board members of the Young Men's Christian Association in New York. And they're the ones who send him to Washington, D.C. in the winter of 1873. And with the help of Supreme Court Justice William Strong, they together craft the language of the first federal uh, anti-obscenity law that has a mechanism for enforcement. So this is why the Comstock laws are really important because there had been some sporadic state level obscenity laws. There had been a really toothless federal law. Um, But this is the first time that the federal government is going to begin a really pretty widespread censorship campaign against sexually explicit, sexually themed materials. And that includes even sexual health manuals, you know, any discussion that has a specific language. So penis, vagina, you know, condom, anything like that is going to be uh, declared obscene and illegal. And the reign of Anthony Comstock is roughly from that moment in 1873 when the Comstock Law is passed until his death is uh, in 1915. The language of the federal statute, which is really broad, is copied by a lot of state statutes. That's another reason why Comstock is really important because the he's traveling around the country getting state legislatures to pass similar language so that the you know, terrain in which these materials can be seized and destroyed is really, is really widespread um, by the turn of the 20th century. He has, just to round out the, the big picture here, his, pa- his own personal power comes from being secretary of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, which is a private, nonprofit, vice-fighting organization, which is set up by these wealthy YMCA leaders, and Comstock is the secretary of that for his entire uh, career. And also, he is an inspector for the Postal Service, specifically charged with uh, enforcing the uh, postal laws regarding obscenity. So um, with those two hats, he manages to seize and destroy literally millions of photographs, pictures, uh, birth control um, items, abortifacients, uh, shuts down newspapers that are advertising these kinds of objects, and sends a lot of people to jail, often for a long time. So that's kind of a big picture overview yeah. of Comstock. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to there's a lot to dig into there, and I, I'd love to return to talk in more depth about some of those uh, elements of of Comstock's career that, that you mentioned, but I wanted to kind of reflect on, on the kind of the big picture that you've been talking about for just a minute, because I mean, it struck me reading your book that in a way it's a biography of Comstock's career, but at the same time, it's also like a biography of Gilded Age obscenity law. And and I kind of wonder about the kind of 
almost dialectical relationship between the two and, and how you think about that after studying the, the era so deeply and studying concepts so deeply and, and thinking about it. I mean, was, was Comstock shaping obscenity law during that period? Was he reflecting sort of social demands and social pressures and sort of like a function of the development of obscenity law or like some combination of the two, do you think? Well, I love speaking with legal historians because I feel like I have the opportunity as an art historian to kind of insert the content into the story more because if you just read textbooks about the evolution of First Amendment jurisprudence, you know, you won't really see too much about the particular culture that the law responded to, and then that in turn was sort of shaped by the law. And so my goal was really to tell these two stories together, the way people responded to censorship and the way that censorship changed culture, and then also the way that culture changed law, because what ends up happening is there's this ratcheting up of obscenity and sexual explicitness because censorship makes it profitable and chic and modern. Um, and so this preamble to all of the really big First Amendment decisions of the 20th century is happening not, in my mind, not in the realm of political speech, but it's happening in the realm of sexual speech. And so a really mm. big picture goal of the book was to add this dimension back into the story and to remember how important artists in particular are to the shape of American speech and to the freedom that we have. Artists play a really important role in uh, preserving American uh, free speech. Um, but I think the uh, other thing that is, you know, really important from my perspective is to tell a story of when the separation of church and state <laughs> is really not a thing because what Comstock is doing, as I started out saying, is bringing this very particular evangelical congregationalist view of sexuality and the human body into American law and having that enforced. And of course, that is always a danger. It's a significant danger today as we see all of these state cases coming up, basically trying to go back to this era. So I think it's important that we think about what exactly this era looked like. Uh, and this era was incredibly oppressive for women who wanted to have control over their reproductive lives. Um, the censorship that happened really exacerbated the power imbalances that existed. So when you look at the arrest blotters, they're going after Jews, they're going after uh, Catholics, um, increasingly immigrants. They're railing against, you know, these, uh, you know, immigrants who may be bringing in uh, other religious traditions and other uh, sort of attitudes towards sexuality. And, um, uh, and so th this moment, I think it is important it, for all of those dimensions that are so resonant with, you know, what's going on right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, in, in the early in the book, you compared to literary works that I thought at least for me, provided a really interesting kind of framing for thinking about sort of opposing ways of thinking about like desire, lust, and sexuality. Mm -hmm. And those were um, uh, Fanny Hill and Pilgrim's 
progress. Yes. <laughs> and, and for me, that was just such a such a kind of just provocative way of thinking about the sort of opposing forces in that period, instead of actually, again, like reflecting on an earlier period of literary history and the way it kind of informed the way people like Comstock in like Comstock in people in his era thought about art and literature and desire and shame and so on. Mm -hmm. I think you'd say a little something about those two books and why you thought that they were a helpful way of, of framing Anthony Comstock and his world. Oh, I love that you picked that out because that was one of my favorite kind of little epiphanies that I had when I realized that the structure of those two books is exactly the same, which is uh, Fanny Hill was the most popular, widely reproduced uh, pornographic novel um, of the 19th century. And it uh, it's an English book that basically follows this young woman, Fanny Hill, who um, gets, unfortunately, she has all these terrible things that happen, and she ends up being inducted into this kind of sisterhood within a brothel. And it's kind of tells, you know, each episode is where she experiences some new sexual flavor with a client. Um, And so there's, you know, bondage and um, spanking and, uh, and lesbian sexual activity and group sex and that sort of thing. But each episode is its own little chapter. And then at the end of the book, she's kind of redeemed, it gets married. And so it uh, is literally pornography because the word pornography means stories about prostitution. So this was illegal, you know, everywhere. It was illegal in England. It was illegal in the United States, but it was also incredibly widespread. And we see a lot of visual culture, a lot of illustrations that are, um, you know, pornographic that are based on the stories in Fanny Hill, many of which I illustrate or some of which I illustrate in the book uh, that were found in evidence in trials. And then, um, Pilgrim's Progress is the same kind of structure where we meet this sort of hero and he journeys through life and each episode he's defeating, you know, some trap that Satan is setting for him on his way to the kingdom of heaven. And so this was an incredibly ubiquitous text in um American schools, actually in American, even in American public schools, the New Testament was read and Pilgrim's Progress was read. And it was supposed to be this kind of, uh, you know, archetypal figure who children would look up to and try to emulate that life was filled with these pitfalls such as lust, right? Lust was the kind of thing that if you let it derail you, if you let Satan draw you in through desire, then you would burn in hell. And uh, I illustrate a lot of that kind of Christian evangelical visual culture that also showed um, Satan being the source of lust and the desire of the body being a a trap set for people. And um, so these two texts, even though, as you note, they are uh, both incredibly, um, you know, similar in some ways in terms of how common they are and in terms of uh, their narrative structure, but they, they are at the opposite poles. And getting back to that, that idea of, um, you know, how popular was Comstock's campaign? Pop- Comstock's campaign was popular with a certain set. I see him as a really polarizing figure. 
that by the end of the life, what he's doing is so outrageous, you know, and he starts to go after artists and things that people are really kind of shaking their head. People really start to be like for or against Comstock. It's not like a middle ground by the time you get to the 1890s. I mean, so those two polls, you know, the Fannie Hill has its proponents who think it's fine, or at the very least that the government shouldn't be involved in suppressing this kind of thing. You know, there's a lot of libertarian sentiment. And then there's also a lot of recognition that censorship was just bringing more attention to these kinds of materials. They were in the newspaper all the time when he was seizing things and burning them. And um, that gave, you know, a certain amount of advertising to these kinds of things. And then, you know, the the um, folks in the Pilgrim's Progress side of things then, as now, really wanted government to be kind of a moral enforcer and uh, saw the, the justice system as, you know, a, a good arbiter. Um, so I think, we, again, we still have a, a framework that in, in some ways is kind of similar, although I think the percentages of Americans on either side of these issues has, has shifted a lot. Mm. So one of the takeaways from that I found in, in, in your book that I hadn't really thought about much before was sort of just how important the organization that Comstock was running, running was in terms of kind of shaping the approach to obscenity long during that period, you know, the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, which was a really unique organization in the sense that it was like a private organization with certain kinds of public authority that seemed to result in these very kind of almost arbitrary um, kangaroo court decisions. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like how it actually worked, because I found that quite surprising that, you know, that it was even, you know, accepted that an or- a private organization could do those kinds of things instead of how that played out in, in practice. Yeah, well, it was really a mess. And again, it's a real cautionary tale of when you don't care anymore about the separation of church and state, because this is an organization that every meeting begins with prayer. Every meeting ends with prayer. Uh, they are, you know, networking and raising money through, uh, meetings of evangelical men. All the boards of directors are evangelical. The members of the boards of the, uh, um, are, are evangelical. And the decisions that they're making follow these kinds of you know, uh, this moral framework that comes from this particular uh, religious perspective. But the the authority that they have, again, I think now you just shake your head and, you know, what was going on? When they incorporated in New York State in 1874, the act of incorporation gave them, uh, directed the police to make arrests on their behalf. That in all cases, when they go to the police and ask the police to make an arrest, they have to do so. And gave them 50% of all the fines and fees collected. So if you, uh, let's say, had um, kind of naughty cigarette advertising in the window of your tobacco shop, this is a really, you know, borderline kind of raid. Comstock would come in and he'd say, look, those, you've got images of women in tights and these cigarette advertisements in your front window. Uh, you know, people could, young people could come by and see them. Women could come by and see them. If you don't, uh, here's a copy of the Act of Incorporation of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, and here's a copy of the Comstock Law, and I'm coming back tomorrow, and if they're still there, I'm going to arrest you. And um, 
so most of the time people respond to that kind of thing with self-censorship, but sometimes, you know, people were really, uh, they were making money on these objects. They thought this was kind of ridiculous and they, you know, would have their stores raided and an object seized. And Comstock didn't always give warning. Sometimes you just come in, ask to buy something. And then when it was handed over, arrest the person who did that. Uh, then during the trials, you know, <laughs> In the 1870s and even through much of the 1880s, the jury wasn't allowed to see the evidence because Comstock would argue that it would be harmful, right, that the people might experience lust and then they would end up in hell. And so Comstock would just testify that it was obscene and that it had been purchased in such and such a you know place and time and so forth. And then the jury would just, you know, be asked to validate, well, this does you know, this crime accords with the law. And so the person might be, you know, given, you know, in many cases, these, those kind of little crimes were 25 or $50 fine or something like that. Um, Comstock was, so he would walk the beat, you know, he would walk the streets looking for vice. And then people sent him things in the mail. I got this in the mail. My husband got this in the mail. I'm so horrified. And then he would use an alias to answer the advertisement and order something. And then, um, go to the post office where the request usually, you know, would arrive in some post office box and wait and see who opened the mailbox and then arrest that person. And a lot of, you know, American defense attorneys start to say, wait a second, this isn't, you know, they're not using the language of entrapment, but they're saying, should government really be able to spy on Americans like this? Should the, should they be open? able to open envelopes, which he starts to do in the beginning of his career. And then they say, no, you really can't open envelopes. And then he takes pains to basically say, oh, the envelopes were there, but they, these things weren't stuffed in them, which is probably a lie. Um, so that's basically the mechanism. And these are the particular things that defense attorneys start to push back on and, and where you really start to see the law be applied in new ways and procedure be developed that judges start to say in response to defense attorneys, yeah, I guess you're right, that the jury can't really evaluate what the peer has done unless the crime is actually evident and we can see what it is. And yeah, this, you know, entrapment, it, it starts to seem like it's unfair. Um, and in many cases, once the jury sees the things that are being suppressed, often they they are throwing the case you know the uh juries are throwing the case out of the judges basically saying look uh, just you know plead guilty no fine and we'll forget about it which is often what Comstock is willing to accept especially when you start to get into the 1890s and he's really having very little luck and he's just totally um ridiculed in the press on a pretty constant basis and so his power is really eroding mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the one of the things that really struck me as as someone who's looked at this material primarily through the lens of legal history in the past is the way in which, and I think you're right in what you said earlier that like you know as legal historians there's a tendency to sort of look through the lens of the court because mm -hmm. you know that's that's the tool we have and you really illustrate the extent to which during at least a significant period of time the definition of obscenity wasn't really given by the courts it was given by Comstock and it was it seems almost as if it was like if Anthony Comstock thought it was sexy then it was obscene mm -hmm. um 
And and I don't recall you actually like saying it explicitly, but I felt like the book really alludes to it in a sense, or like suggests that perhaps like part of this entire crusade or part of the reason that Anthony Comstock became the kind of the figurehead for the anti-obscenity campaign was that like it almost gave him an opportunity or justification for looking at this material in in the first place. I mean, there's, there's a kind of hyper prurience about him almost. Oh, and, and certainly his, his detractors claimed that all the time they were, they would go into court and say how long he had sat in the brothel watching the floor show, you know, and, uh, or, you know, he was called in the newspapers, like the world's uh, greatest collector of pornography and his, his motives were impugned all the time. And I take pains to, you know, point out that that's a really old story of censorship, that when you put yourself in a position of being the moral authority, people will start basically claiming, well, who made you judge and jury on what's moral and immoral? And so I think that that, um, that's a very old story of censorship, and it definitely works to Comstock's disadvantage that that, that claim can so easily be made. And then I think the thing about, the, you know, the the definition of obscenity, one thing that fascinated me as an art historian was to think about how easy it is, again, in the framework of legal history to think about seven dirty words, right? Here's the list of words. Don't say those, right? And and going back to Comstock's day, he had, I love uh, Angela Haywood, who was one of the uh, targets of prosecution, who was a free love advocate. She referred to the term penis literature that she wanted as a free love advocate. She wanted a a whole rational conversation about sexuality that was empowering for women and men. And she referred to all of these words. So this was like the seven dirty words of the 19th century were like, you know, penis, vagina, condom, orgasm, that kind of thing. You could make a whole long list of those. Um, but moving to the art realm, well, what's the equivalent of that in a photograph or in a painting? And I was thinking, well, obviously, like any, like an erect penis is clearly then and now that is like the definition of kind of obscene pornography or, and of course, that's not really, I mean, now, of course, we have a lot of art that shows, um, you know, that in some, in various contexts, but, you know, back then that was clearly thing, but then move down to, well, what about a breast? Right. And we have tons of naked breasts in marble sculptures, right? That's okay. But then what if it has, you know, sometimes they have a nipple, sometimes they don't have a nipple. And so I was really interested to see the way those lines of what was acceptable, you know, art versus obscenity, how that line is, as I mentioned, like it's just ratcheted up over the course of his career because what uh -huh. artists keep doing is they keep saying, oh, all right, so here's your line. This is what's unacceptable. And then they're going to push it a little bit and a little bit. And so they are able through this very flexible medium of, you know, painting and sculpture and photography, always able to make it just a little bit more and which raises the profitability and the, you know, the modernity, the sense that this is kind of new and shocking, makes it titillating. Um, and so the, you know, the effect of Comstock calling out, no, this thing is wrong and this thing is wrong. I, I refer to this as kind of whack-a-mole censorship, which I think mm. is often what ends up happening. It's like you strike it down there and then uh, people find a way to kind of either move into a new medium 
or move into a new distribution mechanism, maybe relocate to a place that isn't so heavily policed, which happens, you know, that there's more production out in the West. And, um, and then again, to just keep appealing to audiences with, you know, Comstock wouldn't like this. That was actually something that was used in advertisements all the time. You know, this would make Comstock blush or, you know, heaven forbid Comstock see this latest thing, this latest performance or um, outfit or something like that. So Mm. these are all the ways that I think culture is so important to understanding changes in the law. Mm. When you talk about the role of, of shame in the kind of social enforcement that was kind of the backdrop for all of these legal legal regimes. And it, it, it seemed to me that the story you were telling was almost one in which you had this kind of hyper-literal person who was deep, so deeply ashamed of like his own yeah, desires right. <laughs> in some sense. And, and he just, he just took his job so literally. Right. And, you know, at first a certain subset of society was okay with what he was doing because he was going after the undesirables and punishing people and activities that they didn't think were kind of socially appropriate. And then it almost seems like the, his downfall was that he didn't know when to stop. I think that's absolutely true is that he is, uh, it's interesting because he is kind of this, uh, straw man in a way, like it, it was easy to show the changes in American culture, uh, by following his, story um because his views don't really shift but america changes so dramatically around him and he doesn't see it and i think that that makes him in a sense a kind of a tragic figure and i realized at one point like what a what a shame what a waste of a life of incredible energy and persistence and you know just the strength that he showed in trying to you know day after day after day i mean he never you can see when he went on vacation because he'd be making arrests in the catskills you know and that was sort of his you know he was never on vacation um and then at the end of the day america was much more obscene and the foundations of a strong first amendment defense uh, were laid in response to his campaign. So the unintended consequences have absolutely won out over the uh, things that he intentionally tried to do. And I, I tried to really portray that side of him as well, you know, not to take the kind of the easy route of just, you know, writing a, a caricature, but really trying mm-hmm. to understand his depth of faith, his own particular version of faith and the way that that influenced American culture and not in the way that he expected. And I think that's an important lesson of censorship is uh, really understanding the ecosystem of speech that when you try to suppress speech, a lot of unintentional things are going to happen. And the Comstock really makes that point. Yeah, when and in several places in the book you kind of you point to his key failures as being places where he went after people who were producing things that in the social context that was relevant people didn't think that the 
products or the, the works in question were, were shameful in the first place. And I'm, I'm thinking of like, for example, the, the photographers taking photographs, like cigarette card mm-hmm, photographs yeah. or, or par- parlor photographs of actresses and the kind of the wealthy bar owners with the large nude paintings. Right. And then finally, you know, where you kind of wrap the story up with the art students league mm. and their, you know, really kind of militant resistance to, to Comstock's efforts to suppress what, what they were doing. And I was wondering if you could, you could just spend a minute, like talking about those events or whichever ones you think would be most illuminating um, and sort of why socially you think those were places where he couldn't see that it wasn't going to work and the people he was pursuing just didn't seem afraid of him. Well, he's not getting many, um, he, he's not getting many convictions by the time you get into the early 20th century. Um, the, you know, there are now defense attorneys who, you know, many of whom will soon form the American civil liberties union, uh, who are, you know, uh, raising, well, progressive activists are raising money, to pay lawyers to defend the uh, targets of Comstock's raids. And those include some really famous people like Emma Goldman and uh, Margaret Sanger. And they, you know, getting back to shame, what they really want, again, is this, as Angela Haywood did, this robust, uh, open conversation about sexuality that people could empower themselves, and especially women could empower themselves to suffer less disease and to suffer less of these sort of uh, serial pregnancies through which they never really had an opportunity to recover. Uh, Often people were malnourished children were malnourished. And so there are real things at stake moving beyond just, you know, the dirty pictures and that sort of thing. And, and the the idea that, oh, any woman who experienced sexual desire should feel shame, um, and, you know, might be open to being a prostitute, you know, that's basically was, you know, the message at the time, I think that women, and especially now we're moving into this, the suffragette movement, I mean, is, is really gathering steam and becoming much more powerful. I think women in particular, who had really been uh, the, you know, main, continued to be the main supporters of Comstock's you know, uh, raids and so forth, that they, they start to see that there's a lot at stake uh, for women in the, in these um, prosecutions and, and in the, ideals of sort of pure womanhood that Comstock is constantly going on about. Um, And more women are working. A lot of this relates to demographic change. You have a lot more women coming into, uh, you know, work environments, having money to spend, just basically gaining power. And Comstock's very kind of, um, I would say, militant, patriarchal view of American society seems so outdated. He becomes a walking anachronism. And that really reduces his power culturally and in the courts, which those things always go hand in hand. Mm, mm. Well, Amy, in, in closing, I wonder if you could reflect on kind of Comstock's legacy a little bit, because of course, as you point out in the book, his own kind of personal cr- crusade sort of came to a more or less ignominious end. Uh, but efforts to suppress obscenity or sexual speech certainly didn't end with 
Anthony Comstock. So, you know, to what extent do you think that the kinds of social issues that were reflected in his crusade were also reflected in later efforts and maybe are even still with us today? Yeah, well, the language of the Comstock law, you know, filters down into new versions of Comstock law that are aimed at technologies like the Communications Decency Act, the Child Online Protection Act. I mean, these kinds of these kinds of uh, very slippery lines that are trying to distinguish between uh, legal and illegal speech derive in many ways directly from the Comstock laws. Uh, and of course, we have in this new wave of, um, you know, efforts to defund Planned Parenthood. I mean, that goes right back to Comstock's prosecutions of uh, Margaret Sanger and other birth control activists. And the kind of the Christian framework for, you know, thinking about when does life begin and all that sort of thing. All of these are echoes of Comstock's campaigns. And I think at their core, we can get, you know, they raise the issues again of whether we can really live up to the ideals that are built into the constitution of being a secular pluralistic nation. There's very clearly no mention of Jesus in the United States constitution. And actually Comstock was involved with efforts to change that to add Jesus, the preamble. Um, And so, you know, the, the uh, events of the, you know, 19, late 19th and early 20th century may seem very distant, now, but they're really not, and they those uh, they are still kind of uh, the framework uh, that it, we can see in a lot of contemporary legal battles. Great. Well, Amy, thanks so much for coming on the show, and congratulations on this excellent book. Thank you so much, Brian. It's been a delight to speak with you. Exciting entertainment news today is about the new motion picture, Therese and Isabel. The critics applauded, calling Therese and Isabel a sizzler from France. Makes the fox look like a milk-fed puppy. Therese and Isabel will be the most talked-about movie around. Produced and directed by Radley Metzger, it stars Essie Person of I, a Woman, and Anna Gale. Persons under 18 cannot be admitted.